Section 15 of The Golden Bell, Part 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 1, by James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 7 Incarnate Human Gods. The conception of gods has been slowly evolved. The instances which in the preceding chapters I have drawn from the beliefs and practices of rude peoples all over the world may suffice to prove that the savage fails to recognize those limitations to his power over nature which seem so obvious to us. In a society where every man is supposed to be endowed more or less with powers which we should call supernatural, it is plain that the distinction between gods and men is somewhat blurred, or rather has scarcely emerged. The conception of gods as superhuman beings endowed with powers to which man possesses nothing comparable in degree, and hardly even in kind, has been slowly evolved in the course of history. By primitive peoples, the supernatural agents are not regarded as greatly, if at all, superior to man, for they may be frightened and coerced by him into doing his will. At this stage of thought, the world is viewed as a great democracy. All beings in it, whether natural or supernatural, are supposed to stand on a footing of tolerable equality but with the growth of his knowledge man learns to realize more clearly the vastness of nature and his own littleness and feebleness in presence of it the recognition of his helplessness does not however carry with it a corresponding belief in the importance of those supernatural beings with which his imagination peoples his the universe on the contrary it enhances his conception of their power for the idea of the world as a system of impersonal forces acting in accordance with fixed and inviolable laws has not yet fully dawned or darkened upon him. The germ of the idea he certainly has, and he acts upon it not only in magic art, but in much of the business of daily life. But the idea remains undeveloped, and so far as he attempts to explain the world he lives in, he pictures it as the manifestation of conscious will and personal agency. If then he feels himself to be so frail and slight, how vast and powerful must he deem the beings who control the gigantic machinery of nature. As religion grows, magic declines into a black art. Thus, as his old sense of equality with the gods slowly vanishes, he resigns at the same time the hope of directing the course of nature by his own unaided resources, that is, by magic, and looks more and more to the gods as the sole repositories of those supernatural powers which he once claimed to share with them. With the advance of knowledge, therefore, prayer and sacrifice assume the leading place in religious ritual and magic which once ranked with them as a legitimate equal is gradually relegated to the background and sinks to the level of a black art it is now regarded as an encroachment at once vain and impious on the domain of the gods and as such encounters the steady opposition of the priests whose reputation and influence rise or fall with those of their gods hence when at a late period the distinction between religion and superstition has emerged we find that sacrifice and prayer are the resource of the pious and enlightened portion of the community, while magic is a refuge of the superstitious and ignorant. But when, still later, the conception of the elemental forces as personal agents is giving way to the recognition of natural law, then magic, based as it implicitly is on the idea of a necessary and invariable sequence of cause and effect, independent of personal will, reappears from the obscurity and discredit into which it had fallen and by investigating the casual sequence in nature, directly prepares the way for silence. Alchemy leads up to chemistry. The conception of a man-god or deity, incarnate in human form, belongs to an early stage of religious history. 
The notion of a man-god, or of a human being endowed with divine or supernatural powers, belongs essentially to that early period of religious history, which gods and men are still viewed as beings of much the same order, and before they are divided by the impassable gulf, which, to later thought, opens out between them. Strange, therefore, as may seem to us the idea of a god incarnate in human form, is nothing very startling for an early man, who sees in a man-god, or a god-man, only a high degree of the same supernatural powers, which he arrogates in perfect good faith to himself. Nor does he draw any very sharp distinction between a god and a powerful sorcerer. His gods, as we have seen, are often merely invisible magicians who, behind the veil of nature, work the same sort of charms and incantations which the human magician works in a visible and bodily form among his fellows. And as the gods are commonly believed to exhibit themselves in the likeness of men to their worshippers, it is easy for the magician, with his supposed miraculous powers, to acquire the reputation of being an incarnate deity, thus beginning as little more than a simple conjurer. The medicine man or magician tends to blossom out into a full-blown god and king in one. Only in speaking of him as a god, we must be aware of importing into the savage conception of deity those very abstract and complex ideas which we attach to the term. Our ideas on this profound subject are the fruit of a long intellectual and moral evolution and they are so far from being shared by the savage that he cannot even understand them when they are explained to him. Much of the controversy which has raged as to the religion of the lower races has sprung merely from a mutual misunderstanding. The savage does not understand the thoughts of the civilized man, and few civilized men understand the thoughts of the savage. When the savage uses his word for God, he has in his mind a being of a certain sort. When the civilized man uses his word for God, he has in his mind a being of a very different sort, and if, as commonly happens, the two men are equally unable to place themselves at the other's point of view, nothing but confusion and mistakes can result from their discussions. If we civilized men insist on limiting the name of God to that particular conception of the divine nature which we ourselves have formed, then we must confess that the savage has no God at all. But we shall adhere more closely to the facts of history if we allow most of the highest savages, at least, to possess a rudimentary notion of certain supernatural beings who may fittingly be called gods though not in the full sense in which we use the word. That rudimentary notion represents, in all probability, the germ out of which the civilized peoples have gradually evolved their own high conceptions of deity, and if we could trace the whole course of religious development, we might find that the chain which links our idea of the godhead with that of the savage is one and unbroken. Examples of Incarnate Human Deities when these explanations and cautions, I will now adduce some examples of gods who have been believed by their worshippers to be incarnate in living human beings, whether men or women. The persons in whom a deity is thought to reveal himself are by no means always kings or descendants of kings. A supposed incarnation may take place even in men of the humblest rank. In India, for example, one human god started in life as a cotton bleacher and another as the son of a carpenter. I shall therefore not draw my examples exclusively from royal personages, as I wish to illustrate the general principle of the deification of living men. In other words, the incarnation of a deity in human form. Such incarnate gods are common in rude society. The incarnation either temporary or permanent. The incarnation may be temporary or permanent. In the former case, the incarnation commonly known as inspirational possession reveals itself in supernatural knowledge rather than in supernatural power. In other words, its usual manifestations are divination and prophecy rather than miracles. On the other hand, when the incarnation is not merely temporary and the divine spirit has 
permanently taken up its abode in a human body, the good man is usually expected to vindicate his character by working miracles. Only when we have to remember that by men of this stage of thought, miracles are not considered as breaches of natural law. Not conceiving the existence of natural law, primitive man cannot conceive a breach of it. A miracle is to him merely an unusually striking manifestation of a common power. Temporary Incarnation of Gods in Human Form Among the Polynesians The belief in temporary incarnation or inspiration is worldwide. Certain persons are supposed to be possessed from time to time by a spirit or deity, while the possession lasts, their own personality lies in abeyance. The presence of the spirit is revealed by convulsive shiverings and shakings of the man's whole body by wild gestures and excited looks, all of which are referred not to the man himself, but to the spirit which has entered into him, and in this abnormal state all his utterances are accepted as the voice of the god or spirit dwelling in him and speaking through him. Thus, for example, in the Sandwich Islands, the king personating the god uttered the responses of the oracle from his concealment in a frame of wickerwork. But in the southern islands of the Pacific, the god has frequently entered the priest, who, inflated as it were with the divinity, ceased to act to speak as a voluntary agent, but moved and spoke as entirely under supernatural influence. In this respect, there was a striking resemblance between the rude oracles of the Polynesians and those of the celebrated nations of ancient Greece. As soon as the god was supposed to have entered the priest, the latter became violently agitated and worked himself up to the highest pitch of apparent frenzy. The muscles of the limbs seemed convulsed, the body swelled, the countenance became terrific, the features distorted, and the eyes wild and strained. In this state he often rolled on the earth, foaming at the mouth, as if labouring under the influence of the divinity by whom he was possessed. In shrill cries, the violent often indistinct sounds revealed the will of the god. The priests, who were attending and versed in the mysteries received and reported to the people the declarations which had been thus received. When the priest had uttered the response to the oracle, the violent paroxysm gradually subsided, and a comparative composure ensued. The god did not, however, always leave him as soon as the communication had been made. Sometimes the name Taura, or priest, continued for two or three days, possessed by the spirit of deity, a piece of a native cloth of a peculiar kind, worn round one arm was an indication of inspiration, or of the indwelling of the god with the individual who wore it. The acts of the man during this period were considered as those of the god, and hence the greatest attention was paid to his expressions and the whole of his deportment. When Uruhia, under the inspiration of the spirit, the priest was always considered as sacred as the god, and was called during this period a Tua god, though at other times only demonated Torah or priest. Temporary Incarnation of Gods in Mangaya, Fiji, Bali, and Salibs In Mangaya, an island on the South Pacific, the priests in whom the gods took up their abode from time to time were called the god-boxes, or, for shortness, gods. Before giving oracles as gods, they drank an intoxicating liquor, and in the frenzy thus produced their wild whirling words were received as the voice of the deity. In Fiji there is in every tribe a certain family who alone are liable to be thus temporarily inspired or possessed by a divine spirit. Their qualification is hereditary, and any one of the ancestral gods may choose his vehicle from among them. I have seen this possession, and a horrible sight it is. In one case, after the fit was over, for some time the man's muscles and nerves twitched and quivered in an extraordinary way. He was naked except for his breech-clout, 
and on his naked breast little snakes seem to be wriggling for a moment or two beneath his skin disappearing and then suddenly reappearing in another part of his chest when the mabit which we may translate priest for want of a better word is seized by the possession the god within him calls out his own name in a stridulous tone it is i katsuiver or some other name at the next possession some other ancestor may declare himself in bali there are certain persons called Burmas, who are predestined or fitted by nature to become the temporary abode of the invisible deities when a god is to be consulted the villagers go and compel some of these mediums to lend their services sometimes the medium leaves his consciousness at home and is then conducted with marks of honour to the temple ready to receive the godhead into his person temporary incarnation of gods in human form generally however some time passes before he can be brought into the requisite frame of body and mind but the desired result may be hastened by making him inhale the smoke of incense or surrounding him with a band of singing men or women the soul of the medium quits for a time his body which is thus placed at the disposal of the deity and up to the moment when his consciousness returns all his words and acts are regarded as proceeding not from himself but from the god so long as a possession lasts he is a diwa keparagan that is a god has become a man and in that character he answers the question put to him during this time his body is believed to be immortal and hence invulnerable a dance with swords and pikes follows the consultation of the oracle but these weapons could make no impression on the ethereal body of the inspired medium in poso a district of central salives sickness is often supposed to be caused by an alien substance such as a piece of tobacco a stick or even a chopping knife which has been introduced unseen into the body of the sufferer by the magic art of an insidious foe to discover and eject this foreign matter is a task for a god who for this purpose enters into the body of a priestess speaks through her mouth and performs the necessary surgical operation with her hands an eyewitness of the ceremony has told how when the priestess sat beside the sick man with her head covered by a cloth she began to quiver and shake and to sing in a strident tone at which some one observed to the writer now her own spirit is leaving her body and a god is taking its place on removing the cloth from her head she was no longer a woman but a heavenly spirit and gazed about her with an astonished air as if to ask how she came from her own celestial region to this humble abode yet the divine spirit condescended to chew betel and to drink palm wine like any poor mortal of earthly mould after she had pretended to extract the cause of the disease by laying the cloth from her head on the patient's stomach and pinching it she veiled her face once more sobbed quivered and shook violently at which the people said the human spirit is returning into her deification of the sacrificer in brahman ritual a brahman householder who performs irregular half monthly sacrifices is supposed thereby to become himself a deity for a time in the words of the satipatha brahma mana he who is consecrated draws nigh to the gods and becomes one of the deities all formulas of the consecration are od grabhama elevatory since he who is consecrated elevates himself Adgrab, from this world to the world of the gods he elevates himself by means of these same formulas he who is consecrated indeed becomes both vishnu and a sacrificer for when he is consecrated he is vishnu and when he sacrifices he is a sacrificer after he has completed the sacrifice he becomes man again divesting himself of his sacred character with the words now i am he who i really am which are thus explained in the satipatha 
Brahma Manna. In entering upon the vow he becomes, as it were, non-human, and as it would not be becoming for him to say, I enter from truth into untruth, and as in fact he now again becomes man, let him therefore divest himself of the vow with the text. Now I am he who I really am. The New Birth The means by which the sacrifice passes from untruth to truth, from the human to the divine, was a simulation of a new birth. It was sprinkled with water as a symbol of seed. He feigned to be an embryo and shut himself up in a special hut which resembled the womb. Under his robe he wore a belt and over it the skin of a black antelope. The belt stood for the navel string and the robe and the black antelope skin represented the inner and outer membranes, the amnion and the chorion, in which an embryo is wrapped. He might not scratch himself with his nails or a stick because he was an embryo and were an embryo scratched with nails or a stick it would die. If he moved about in the hut, it was because the child moves about in the womb. If he kept his fist double up, it was because an unborn babe does the same. If in bathing he put off the black antelope skin but retained his robe, it is because the child is born with the amnion and not the chorion. By these practices he acquired in addition to his old natural and mortal body, a new body that was sacramental and immortal, invested with superhuman powers encircled with an aureole of fire. Thus, by a new birth, a regeneration of his carnal nature, the man became a god. At his natural birth, the Brahmin said, Man is born but in part. It is by sacrifice that he is truly born to the world. The funeral rites which ensured the final passage from earth to heaven might be considered as a phrase of the new birth. In truth, they said, Man is born thrice. At first he is born of his father and mother, then when he sacrifices he is born again, and lastly when he dies and is laid on the fire, he is born again from it, and that is his third birth. That is why they say that man is born thrice. Temporary incarnation or inspiration produced by drinking blood. But examples of such temporary inspiration are so common in every part of the world, and now so familiar through books on ethnology, that it is needless to multiply illustrations of the general principle. It may be well, however, to refer to two particular modes of producing temporary inspiration, because they are perhaps less known than some others, and because we shall have occasion to refer to them later on. One of these modes of producing inspiration is by sucking the fresh blood of a sacrificed victim. In the temple of Apollo, Deradiots at Argos, a lamb was sacrificed by night once a month. A woman who had to observe a rule of chastity tasted the blood of the lamb, and thus being inspired by the god, she prophesied or divined. At Agira, in Akia, the priestess of earth drank the fresh blood of a bull before she descended into the cave to prophecy. In southern India, a devil dancer cuts and lacerates his flesh till the blood flows, lashes himself with a huge whip, presses a burning torch to his breast, drinks the blood which flows from his own wounds, or drinks the blood of the sacrifice, putting the throat of the decapitated goat to his mouth. Then... As if he had acquired new life, he begins to brandish his staff of bells and to dance with a quick but wild unsteady step. Suddenly, the aphatius descends. There is no mistaking that glare or those frantic leaps. He snorts, he stares, he gyrates. The demon has now taken bodily possession of him, and though he retains the power of utterance and of motion, both are under the demon's control, and his separate consciousness is in abeyance. The bystanders signalize the event by raising a long shout, attended with a peculiar vibratory noise, which is caused by the motion of the hand and tongue, or of the tongue alone. 
The devil dancer is now worshipped as a present deity, and every bystander consults him respecting his disease, his wants, welfare of his absent relatives, the offerings to be made for the accomplishment of these wishes, and, in short, respecting everything for which superhuman knowledge is supposed to be available. Similarly, among the Kurivakarans, a class of bird catchers and beggars in southern India, the goddess Kali is believed to descend upon the priest, and he gives oracular replies after sucking the blood which streams from the cut throat of a goat. After the festival of the Alfurs of Minahasa in northern Salibs, after a pig has been killed, the priest rushes furiously at it, thrusts his head into the carcass and drinks of the blood. Then he is dragged away from it by force and set on a chair, whereupon he begins to prophesy how the rice crop will turn out that year. A second time he runs at the carcass and drinks of the blood. A second time he is forced into the chair and continues his predictions. It is thought that there is a spirit in him which possesses the power of prophecy. Drinking blood as means of inspiration. At Retra, a great religious capital of the Western Slavs, the priest tastes the blood of the sacrificed oxen and sheep in order to better the prophecy. The true test of the Danyal or diviner among some of the Hindu Kush tribes is to suck the blood from the neck of a decapitated goat. The Takas on the border of Kashmir have prophets who act as inspired mediums between the deity and his worshippers. At the sacrifice, the prophet inhales the smoke of the sacred cedar in order to keep off evil spirits and sometimes he drinks warm blood as it spouts from the neck of the decapitated victim before he utters his oracle. The heathen of Iran regarded blood as unclean, but nevertheless drank it because they believed it to be the food of demons, and thought that by imbibing it, they entered into communion with the demons who would thus visit them and lift the veil that hides the future from mortal vision. Temporary incarnation or inspiration produced by means of a sacred tree or plant. The other mode of producing temporary inspiration, to which I shall here refer, consists in the use of a sacred tree or plant. Thus in Hindu Kush, a fire is kindled with twigs of the sacred cedar, and the dinyal or sobel, with a cloth over her head, inhales the thick pungent smoke till she is seized through the convulsions and falls senseless to the ground. Soon she rises and raises a shrill chant, which is caught up and loudly repeated by her audience. So Apollo's prophetess ate the sacred laurel and was humigated with it before she prophesied. The Bacchanals ate ivy, and their inspired fury was by some believed to be due to the exciting and intoxicating properties of the plant. In Uganda, the priest, in order to be inspired by his god, smokes a pipe of tobacco fiercely till he works himself into a frenzy. The loud, excited tones in which he then talks are recognized as the voices of the god speaking through him. In Madura, an island off the north coast of Java, each spirit has its regular medium, who is oftener a woman than a man. To prepare herself for the reception of the spirit, she inhales the fumes of incense, sitting with her head over a smoking censer. Gradually, she falls into a sort of trance, accompanied by shrieks, grimaces, and violent spasms. The spirit is now supposed to have entered into her, and when she grows calmer, her words are regarded as ocular, being the utterances of the indwelling spirit, while her own soul is temporarily absent. INSPIRED VICTIMS It is worth observing that many peoples expect the victim, as well as a priest or prophet, to give signs of inspiration by convulsive movements of the body, and if the animal remains obstinately steady, they esteem it unfit for sacrifice. That's when the yakuts sacrifice to an evil spirit. The beast must bellow and roll about, which is considered a token that the evil spirit has entered into it. Apollo's prophetess 
could give no oracles unless the sacrificial victim trembled in every limb when the wine was poured on its head. But for ordinary Greek sacrifices, it was enough that the victim should shake its head. To make it do so, water was poured on it. Many other peoples, Tonquines, Hindus, Chawash, and so forth, have adopted the same test of a suitable victim. They pour water or wine on its head. If the animal shakes its head, it is accepted for sacrifice. If it does not, it is rejected. Among the kafirs of the Hindu Kush, the priest or his substitute pours water into the ear and all down the spine of the intended victim, whether it be a sheep or a goat. It is not enough that the animal should merely shake its head to get the water out of its ear. It must shake its whole body as a wet dog shakes himself. When it does so, a kissing sound is made by all present, and the victim is forthwith slaughtered. Divine Power Acquired by Temporary Inspiration the person temporarily inspired is believed to acquire not merely divine knowledge, but also, at least occasionally, divine power. In Cambodia, when an epidemic breaks out, it happens that several villages unite and go with a band of music at their head to look for the man whom the local god is supposed to have chosen for his temporary incarnation. When found, the man is conducted to the altar of the god where the mystery of incarnation takes place. Then the man becomes an object of veneration to his fellows who implore him to protect the village against the plague. A certain image of Apollo, which stood in a sacred cave at Hyle near Magnesia, was thought to impart superhuman strength. Sacred men, inspired by it, leaped down precipices, tore up huge trees by the roots, and carried them on their backs along the narrowest defiles. The feats performed by inspired dervishes belonged to the same class. Human gods or men permanently possessed by deity Thus far we have seen that the savage, failing to discern the limits of his ability to control nature, ascribes to himself and to all men certain powers which we should now call supernatural. Further, we have seen that, over and above this general supernaturalism, some persons are supposed to be inspired for short periods by a divine spirit, and thus temporarily to enjoy the knowledge and power of the indwelling deity. From beliefs like these, it is an easy step to the conviction that certain men are permanently possessed by deity or in some other undefined way, are endued with so high a degree of supernatural power as to be ranked as gods and to receive the homage of prayer and sacrifice. Sometimes these human gods are restricted to purely supernatural or spiritual functions. Sometimes they exercise supreme political power in addition. In the latter case, there are kings as well as gods and the government is a theocracy. Human gods in the Pacific That's the Marquises, or Washington Islands, there was a class of men who were deified in their lifetime. They were supposed to wield a supernatural power over the elements. They could give abundant harvests or smite the ground of barrenness. They could inflict disease or death. Human sacrifices were offered to them to avert their wrath. There were not many of them, at the most one or two in each island. They lived in mystic seclusion. Their powers were sometimes, but not always, hereditary. A missionary has described one of these human gods from a personal observation. The god was a very old man who lived in a large house within an enclosure, and the house was a kind of altar, and on the beams of the house and on the trees round it were hung human skeletons, head down. No one entered the enclosure except the persons dedicated to the service of the god. Only on days when human victims were sacrificed might ordinary people penetrate into the precinct. This human god received more sacrifices than all other gods. Often he would sit on a sort of scaffold in front of his house and call for two or three human victims at a time. They were always brought, for the terror he inspired was extreme. 
it was invoked all over the island and offerings were sent to him from every side again of the south sea islands in general we are told that each island had a man who represented or personified the divinity such men were called gods and their substance was confounded with that of the deity the man god was sometimes a king himself oftener he was a priest or a subordinate chief Taratoa, king of ratia was defied by a certain ceremony performed as the chief temple as one of the divinities of his subjects therefore the king was worshipped consulted as an oracle and had sacrifices and prayers offered to him this is not an exceptional case the kings of the island regularly enjoyed divine honours being deified at the time of their accession at his inauguration the king of tahiti received a small girdle of red and yellow feathers which not only raised him to the highest earthly station but identified him with their gods a new piece about eighteen inches long was added to the belt at the inauguration of every king and three human victims were sacrificed in the process the king's houses were called the clouds of heaven the rainbow was the name of the canoe in which he voyaged his voice was spoken of as thunder and the glare of the torches in his dwelling as lightning and when the people saw them in the evening as they passed near his house instead of saying the torches were burning in the palace they would remark that the lightning was flashing in the clouds of heaven when he moved from one district to another on the shoulders of his bearers he was said to be flying the natives of futuna an island in the south pacific are not content with deifying the evils that afflict them they place gods everywhere and even go so far as to suppose that the greatest of all the spirits resides in the person of their prince as a living sanctuary from this belief springs a strange mode of regarding their king and behaving under his authority in their eyes the sovereign is not responsible for his acts they deem him inspired by the divine spirit whose tabernacle he is hence his will is sacred even his whims and rages are revered and if it pleases him to play the tyrant his subjects submit from conscientious motives to the vexations he inflicts on them the gods of samoa generally appeared in animal form but sometimes they were permanently incarnate in men who gave oracles received offerings occasionally of human flesh healed the sick answered prayers and so on in regard to the old religion of the Fijians and especially of the inhabitants of somosomo it is said that there appears to be no certain line of demarcation between departed spirits and gods nor between gods and living men for many of the priests and old chiefs are considered as sacred persons not a few of them will also claim to themselves the right of divinity i am a god tuikila killer would say and he believed it too in the Pelu islands it is thought that every god can take possession of a man and speak through him the possession may be either temporary or permanent in the latter case the chosen person is called a korong the god is free in his choice so the position of korong is not hereditary after the death of a korong the god is for some time unrepresented until he suddenly makes his appearance in a new avatar the person thus chosen gives signs of the divine presence by behaving in a strange way he gapes runs about and performs a number of senseless acts at first people laugh at him but his sacred mission is in time recognized and he is invited to assume his proper position in the state generally this position is a distinguished one and confers on him a powerful influence over the whole community in some of the islands the god is political sovereign of the land and hence his new incarnation however humble his origin is raised on the same high rank and rules as god and king over all the other chiefs human gods in ancient egypt the ancient egyptians far from restricting their adoration to cats and dogs and such small deer very liberally extended it to men 
One of these human deities resided at the village of Anubis, and burnt sacrifices were offered to him on the altars, after which, says Porfiri, he would eat his dinner just as he were an ordinary mortal. Human gods in ancient Greece. In classical antiquity, the Sicilian philosopher Empedocles gave himself out to be not merely a wizard, but a god. Addressing his fellow citizens in verse, he said, O friends, in this great city there climbs yellow slope of agrigemturum citadel who make good works your scope who offer to the stranger a haven quiet and fair all hail among you honoured i walk with lofty air with garlands blooming garlands you crown my noble brow a mortal man no longer a deathless godhead now wherever i go the people crowd round and worship pay and thousands follow seeking to learn the better way some crave prophetic visions some smit with anguish sore would fain hear words of comfort and suffer pain no more he asserted that he could teach his disciples how to make the wind to blow or to be still, the rain to fall and the sun to shine, how to banish sickness and old age and to raise the dead. When Demetrius Poliorcetes restored the Athenian democracy in 307 BC, the Athenians decreed divine honours on him and his father Antigonus, both of them being then alive under the title of the saviour gods. Altars were set up to the saviours and a priest appointed to attend to their worship the people went forth to meet their deliverer with hymns and dances with garlands and incense and libations they lined the streets and sang that he was the only true god for the other gods slept or dwelt far away or were not in the words of a contemporary poet which were chanted in public and sung in private of all the gods the greatest and the dearest to the city are come for demeter and demetrius together time is brought she comes to hold the maiden's awful rites and he joyous and fair and laughing as befits a god a glorious sight with all his friends about him he in their midst they like to stars and he the sun son of poseidon the mighty aphrodite's son all hail the other gods dwell far away or have no ears or are not or pay us no heed but thee we present see no god of water stone but godhead true therefore to thee we pray human goddesses among the ancient germans the ancient germans believed that there was something holy in women and accordingly consulted them as oracles their sacred women we are told looked on the eddying rivers and listened to the murmur or the roar of the water and from the sight and sound foretold what would come to pass but often the veneration of the men went further and they worshipped women as true and living goddesses for example in the reign of Vespasian, a certain felida of the tribe of the bracteri was commonly held to be a deity and that character reigned over her people her sway being acknowledged far and wide she lived in a tower on the river lip as tributary of the rhine when the people of cologne sent to make a treaty with her the ambassadors were not admitted to her presence the negotiations were conducted through a minister who acted as the mouthpiece of her divinity and reported her oracular utterances the example shows how easily among our rude forefathers the ideas of divinity and royalty coalesced it is said that among the getae down to the beginning of our era there was always a man who personified a god and was called god by the people he dwelt on a sacred mountain and acted as adviser to the king End of section fifteen.